Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. I'm Adam Blattenberg from Diesel World. Hi, this is Dan, owner of Dan's Diesel Performance. I'm Christian Roth of BD Diesel. I'm Braden Fleece, and you're listening to the Diesel Podcast. What is going on, Diesel Nation? We're excited to have you guys with us today on the Diesel Podcast. Really excited for today's guest. It's Dave Gorin from Gorin Transmission, and he's a legend in the transmission world, also in diesel performance as well, um, with all of the transmissions and reboot kits and converters and the expertise that he has and what he's been able to do for people that are out there racing and towing their trucks and daily driving, being able to offer them uh, a ton of knowledge and top quality products to be able to put in their transmissions. So really excited to be able to have him today. And I want to thank you guys on our Discord uh, server, which you're going to find a link down below to join. If you haven't, we're just a couple away from 400. And uh, it's the conversations on there are cool. I know I say it every time, but there's so many new people joining and so much sharing of information. It's a great place to be if you're a Diesel Podcast fan. You watch the show, listen to it. It's a great place to be able to interact with us. And then also other diesel podcast fans, whether you have a, a Power Stroke, Cummins, Duramax, whatever you might have, we're always talking about those trucks and different trends and just having great conversations. But someone had recommended that Dave Gorin come on from Discord, and so we're going to be chatting with him today. So make sure you head on over to Discord and sign up. want to see you guys over there. And also for our, our Patreon members, we really appreciate you guys. We've started to see um, just a, a lot of excitement and influx of people that are on there. So we appreciate your support. It goes a long way to being, being able to help the Diesel Podcast and what we do. We do this full-time. This is our full-time job covering diesel, covering trends, topics that you guys want to know about, um, emissions, things that are going on with, with those trucks, and then also just you know parts that uh, you're looking to put on your vehicle, whether you're towing or racing daily driving there's so much information so many stories to cover keeps us busy and we appreciate your support that you've given us not just now but also dating all the way back to january 2016 when we started all right let's get to today's episode with dave gorand and learning more about dodge four speed 68 rfes a little bit of allison talk a little bit of everything just about how transmissions work and how he approaches offering top quality products for them Dave and James, welcome to the Diesel Podcast. I'm really excited to be able to chat with you guys today. We had posted up on Instagram recently and said, hey, what you know transmission company would you like to hear from? And you guys were uh, recommended a ton of times, and I'm familiar with you guys. You guys are synonymous with you know transmission parts and upgrades, so it's really cool to be able to chat with both of you guys today. Thanks. Good to be here. When I first learned of uh, of Garen Parts, it was a long time ago, and I remember, I think I was flipping through a magazine or something like that, and I saw, it was like a write-up of a truck, and he was talking about um, the transmission that he had of your guys's. And, you know, there's a lot of new listeners that we have, people that are new to diesel that might not go back as far as I have and uh, might not be familiar with the brand. I wanted to start with, you know, the company itself. When did it start? What has the progression been like from you guys from the inception until where we are here in you know, February of 2022. Well, uh, my dad started out, uh, it was just a general repair shop when he got out of the army in 1947, he started uh, the army 45, I suppose. And um, 
So from then until 1978, when my brother and I bought him out, you know, we basically worked on everything, um, you know, farm tractors, uh, combines, cars, pickups, whatever. Um, when we bought him out, um, we still did that same stuff. Um, we put some turbo 350s and turbo 400s together. We had them sitting on, sitting on the floor here. Uh, one of the local uh, Chevy dealers came to get something, uh, basically asked what what's the deal with all the trannies sitting here in the front. And it was only like seven or eight. And, um, you know, he said, oh, build these transmissions. And, you know, within a month, that dealership had bought all the transmissions. So we thought, well, this is a lot easier than uh, taking these things out and putting them back in. So, um, so through the eighties, we started getting into uh, those. And um, then in the late uh, or the mid to late eighties, we started doing our own converters. Um, we had to get out of doing some stuff because uh, it's a small town I and mean, 140 people. So it's not like we have a big population to draw uh, employees from. So we started to get out of the, uh, you know, brakes and uh, wheel alignments and working on 18 wheelers and stuff like that. And more focused on um, basically got down to automatics and manuals and um, tune-ups because uh, the engine is so related to the transmission, uh, you know. So by the uh, mid nineties, we had, um, there were two, um, construction companies that were running the Dodge diesel pickups and, you know, they couldn't keep a train in them. And both of them, they were local, you know, 10, 15 miles from us. And uh, both of them brought down a truck, you know, Dodge uh, 2500, 3500 with the Cummins in it. And basically said, you know, you can have these things all winter long. We just need them back in the spring, but we got to figure something out so we don't have to keep putting trannies in them. So I, I don't know how many times we had the tranny in and out of that thing. And we were just going back and forth on the dyno. And, and back then it was basically, you know, get the slip speed of the converter down so it wouldn't ruin the converter clutch. And um, so, you know, somebody stopped in here one day and they had a um they had their tranny done and you know they were in northeast iowa someplace and they asked if uh i had ever seen the uh turbo diesel register and i said no and he said i'll leave the magazine here so uh we put a little business card size ad in the back of the magazine and you know within about a year it was um it went from you know getting one or two calls every two or three months to three or four calls a month. And it just, you know, by, by 2002 or 2003, that's all we were doing was those Dodge pickups. And, uh, you know, then we started doing the Allison's when they came out, of course. And, um, by 2011 or 12, we were so busy doing the converters that we had to stop doing the transmissions. Um, Plus, uh, some of the Dodge stuff, I mean, as far as we're concerned, the planetary gears in a Dodge, the OE Dodge planets were the best. And when we started running out of some of those parts, because they, uh, they were just uh, obsolete, you know, we, we knew we had to step back from that. 
So I guess that brings us to where we are now. <laughs> I do remember that time around 11 or 12, and it was on Cummins Forum and a bunch of different places, just a ton of Cummins enthusiasts were all, you know, kind of riled up because they were so used to, you know, I, I call Garen and order up a transmission and it had transitioned a little bit. And I think as those trucks have gotten some more miles on them, like you mentioned, just the availability of being able to get a planetary gear set or some of these other things mm -hmm. is really tough. And, um, you know, the, the rebuild kit market is so huge now. And it, uh, I, I kind of wanted to transition to that side of it. <clears throat> and we could start with like the 47 and the 48 REs. I know we've got a ton of five, nine listeners that listen to us is, you know, from those early days of you know, that construction company bringing a couple trucks and saying, hey, can you figure this out to, you know, where you're at now, what kind of, uh, of packages or setups do you guys have for those trucks, whether they're 12 valves, VP44 trucks or 5.9 common rails where you know, somebody with a truck that maybe just tows a lot um, can get set up with parts and a converter versus someone who's maybe doing like a UCC type competition or, or something else like that? Um. Well, I have, uh, I can go over the list of what's in our kit. That um, would be, that would actually be great because I think a lot of times the truck owners out there, they get a little bit, they're kind of intimidated by transmissions and they don't know, you know, and especially comparing kits out there, they can have different things in it. Do I really need this part? Why does this kit have this extra, um, you know, sprag or servo or this gasket set with it? Well, um, we try to, if we're going to put together a kit, we try to put together um, a kit that has the things that they're going to need. Um, like, we'll include the waved snap rings. Not that they break a lot, but they do break. And if we don't put them in the kit, now the guy's hung up. Um, and the, the snap rings, those are, you know, six, $7 parts. So you can include them in the kit pretty easily. Um, some of the things that uh, wouldn't be in the kit that we, we've, I should say, finally came out with. I mean, we were, we struggle with pump gears. Um, a 47, if you get, uh, it's typical to have a seven or eight thousandths lobe tip to tip gap on a set of pump gears, even the new ones from the factory. And um, because the 47 was basically made for a, that was a car transmission that, you know, you'd never see below 2000 RPM. And so the pump speed was uh, enough to have good pump volume. Um, but when you go to a 48, the tip to tip clearance on one of those from the factory is usually uh, two to four thousandths, which that's, that's great. And they work good. It's just that you can't get a replacement gear set. And then you sit there and get a, a, a gear set that if it does have that tight a clearance, um, you stick a hub in the thing and you turn the gears uh, 180 degrees and they bind up. So typically you'll find them that have uh, anywhere from 10 to 20 thousandths clearance. Well, at that kind of clearance, you put them in a diesel and the diesel's running at uh, 14, 1500 RPM, especially if somebody has uh, taller tires. Now, all of a sudden, you're 
line pressure goes down, your cooler pressure goes down, your converter charge pressure is down. So if you have a single disc in there, uh, the single disc doesn't have a fighting chance because your pressure is so low at, you know, 14, 1500 RPM. So we typically wouldn't, I mean, now that we have those available, we, we wouldn't just put those in the kit because, you know, you have a $300 set of pump gears. So it's okay. This is the stuff that's in the kit. This is what you're going to have to need. Um, you tell us if you've got a bad set of pump gears and you order that on the side, so to speak. But we, we would start with, uh, you know, all the clutches um, and steel plates. And um, I'll run down the list and then I'll probably come back to the top and, and then uh, go through the options of if, if somebody's going to build a uh, truck for towing as opposed to a street racing truck or a drag racing truck or what. So all the clutches, gaskets, steel, stuff like that. Um, we would uh, include a front piston for the front clutch drum. Um, not that we see a lot of failures with the stock piston, but there's two different stock pistons. There's early and a late and the height is different. So if we make a kit and we don't know what that guy has, because maybe somebody has been into transmission prior, or we don't know exactly where the month break is, where they started to use the different piston. When we do a kit, we load all of the clutches into a drum and check the uh, clearances so that when the customer gets it, it should be already clearanced for him. He doesn't have to mess around trying to, you know, get the thing just right. So we make a billet piston so that we send that with the kit so that we know what the clearance is going to be. Okay. You know, we just take those theirs out. Um, so we supply, I'm just going down the list of our checklist. So we have an ATSG book that we send along with it. Uh, we send that book so that if the customer needs help, both them and I, or James, or my brother Bob, whoever's answering the call, we're all on the same page. Hey, go to page uh, such and such, go to this uh, diagram, and here's how you assemble that or whatever. So that's why we include that book. Um, a billet set of uh, 3.8 uh, lever strut and anchor for the front band. We have a 4.2 available, um, but typically we use a 3.8. The accumulator piston, it's a four ring piston. Uh, two of the seals are D ring seals, not necessarily to make the hydraulic seal, but to center the piston so that the piston's not scraping inside the aluminum bore. So then there's two uh, Teflon sealing rings that actually do the sealing. Um, a complete bearing kit. Um, it's the big roller bearing that uh, um, probably is the one that really needs to be replaced because uh, that roller bearing, uh, not only is it uh, centering the shaft um, up and down, so to speak, but uh, also axially, and it's not really a good axial bearing. So um, that one, you, you can see, you know, on a 
the guys who have had those 47s and 48s apart or the old 727s, you know, on the input shaft and the old 727, the two ceiling rings, that there wasn't a third ceiling ring, but the two ceiling rings are the same size. So when you air test one of those drums on the pump, the, the drum doesn't want to pop off the pump. But on a 47 or 48, where there's two different sizes, and of course, pressure times area is forced, when you air test one of those, the, the drum wants to pop off of the pump. Well, when everything's assembled, as the pressure goes up, that whole gear train wants to push towards the rear. And, and that's what takes that bearing up. So um, it's easy to see on dyno, you're running it with that little cap off uh, where the snap ring holds the bearing in. And you can just see when you increase the pressure, you can just see the flex on that snap ring. And that's what, you know, um, takes out that uh, snap ring groove, the bore. So of course, uh, one of the things that come in the kit are just a repair shim that goes back there to set that bearing in the original spot again. Um, so then of course a filter, um, we like to use, uh, OE filters when we can, uh, we put a flex plate stiffener in, um, unless they're going to get a, uh, billet flex plate, then that would be taken out of the kit and, um, a front servo, a Sonics front servo cover, a Sonics a rear servo piston, um, we have the Belleville spring that's, uh, you know, the original Belleville spring is 70,000 thick, and we use one that's 90,000 thick just to beef that area up a little bit. Um, then those, uh, that front clutch wave snap ring, overdrive direct wave snap ring, the overdrive brake, the overdrive sun gear, we include that in the kit because a lot of times when you look at that sun gear, the teeth are pitted on the side. So the planetary might be good, the ring gear might be good, but if you replace that sun gear before it destroys the other two, then you're good. So that comes in the kit. Um, a uh, Raybestos Pro Series front band. Um, on the front flex bands, we like to use that one because some of them, uh, the, the steel backing of the band is like 25,000 thick. Uh, these are about 35,000 thick, and um, we've had some of the thinner ones where it just tears that uh, steel backing of the band. So that's why we use that particular one. Um, then we send a thrust washer kit and a, a bushing kit. Not that we want someone to replace all the thrust washers and bushings if they're good, um, but if they're not, they have them. So if the bushings are good, or if the thrust washers are good, the originals, I wouldn't necessarily just go replace those because you have new ones. Um, one of the reasons is uh, most of the bushings that are installed from the factory, they are line board. So they're perfectly centered. So if, if you're gonna replace a bushing, they should be put in with a you know, bushing driver and an arbor press, they should be put into the right depth. You know, if you replace that front drum bushing, um, if you don't put it in far enough, that's gonna mess with your end plate. Uh, if you put it in too far, and if you force it in, let's say you 
pound it in and you put it in too far, that's going to uh, crush the inboard end of it. Now it's not going to, you know, it's not going to fit the back of the stator support, right? Um, the groove in that bushing, even though most of the time the factory doesn't even have it lined up with the uh, V notch in the drum, that that should be lined up with the V notch in the drum because the way the clutch plates get lubricated in that front drum, you know, a lot of times you pull a front drum apart and um, this will be on a 48. You don't see it as much on a 47 because there's only four plates in the 47, there's five in a 48. So you pull the top snap ring out, you pull the backing plate out, the backing plate, uh, you pull the backing plate out, the first clutch plate that comes out, it looks perfect on the backing plate side because you got a big heat sink there. On the other side, it's burnt. The next steel plate that you pull out is, uh, you know, warped like potato chip. Then the next friction that comes out is not so bad. And the next steel that comes out is not so bad. And all the way down the rest of the pack, they get better and better and better. So it's basically just that top steel and friction that are ruined. Well, that tells us that that clutch did not uh, burn up because it didn't have enough capacity. Because if it was slipping while it was applied, all of them would be burnt basically the same because they're all tied together. The steels are tied together and the frictions are tied together. You know, they all, you know, the frictions, all of them spin at the same time. So what that means is when that clutch was supposed to be released, let's say in second gear, the drum is held stationary by the band. So the steel plates are stationary, but the friction plates are spinning with the back of the input shaft. So those plates need to be lubricated. Well, the lube oil comes from, it, it goes through that bushing in the front drum. Anytime you have a bushing that's got a groove all the way through it, that's a lube passage. Unlike a front pump, you know, uh, they'll have a lube passage, but it'll only be about two thirds of the way through the bushing, then it'll be sealed up on the other end. That's trapped the fluid there. So anyway, underneath the, uh, there's two big sealing rings that go on the stator support. There's a little tiny hole that feeds uh, pressure to that circuit. The oil goes through that bushing and that lubricates those clutch plates when they're in, let's say, second gear. So in a case like that, let's say somebody replaces that bushing and they disturb that circuit for whatever reason. And now they keep burning up front clutches because they messed with a bushing that was good. The worst thing would be, let's say somebody got a bushing kit and the front pump, or not front pump, but that front drum bushing didn't have the groove. And some people say, well, you know, it doesn't have the groove because now we got more uh, surface area. No, wait a second. You just eliminated the lube uh, circuit for that front clutch set. So, not to be jumping around here, but uh, that's that's why when we do an input shaft, we'll drill a 30 thousandths hole so that we've got, anytime you're in a forward gear, we've got oil spraying into that clutch to lubricate those plates. And it should be a 30 thousandths hole. We, we've, we've seen a lot of 
drums that, well, we've seen one place that was drilling them at 80,000. So it's like, well, it's hard to get a 30,000th hole in there, but you can't go real big because let's say your feed hole to the uh, rear clutch is uh, 90 thousandths. Well, you put an 80 thousandths hole in there. That's uh, not good. So anyway, um, back to the... How you stack the front clutch probably with the double steel. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that's another reason why we sometimes our stack up, if we start from the top, of, and work down the snap ring comes out the backing plate comes out we put a friction then we would put in two steel plates back to back and then the friction steel friction steel and that's just to put uh, more heat sink at that top where where the lube oil doesn't get to so you don't see that much on a 47 you see it more on a 48 when they added the fifth plate and the fifth plate is just out of the way of the the normal factory lube oil circuit you know it doesn't get as much oil there so that works so that's why we put those two plates uh back to back up there it's just like uh you know the older guys that have uh, done 204 r transmissions the old gms on the overdrive that's what uh, gm did there they stacked two steel plates back to back in the middle of the pack just to take up some heat so um as long as we're on that particular clutch um you kind of asked about some of the differences of building something, you know, a race transmission as opposed to something, uh, you know, that's towing. Um, so if we're going to um, take the shock load off of the gear train, you're going to want a smooth shift. If we're gonna have a smooth shift, which typically is uh, 0.5 to 0.8 seconds long. So what lubricates or cools the steel plate during the shift, because those plates are gonna get up to, uh, you know, five to 700 degrees for that short period during the shift. And that's just normal temperature rise during the shift. So we've got to control that. So what, cools those plates is the oil that's going to be squeezed out of the friction lining during that apply. So let's say we're building a transmission that we want a nice smooth shift um, because it's, um, well, I'll tell you a story. One time when I was about uh, first doing transmissions and uh, the uh, local uh, hospital brought down an ambulance. So, you know, I said, oh, I'm going to make put this and that in there and it's going to shift firm. And I got done with it and it shifted firm. And I, I tell you, what, I was just happier than the lark. Well, it was about two weeks later, one of the EMTs brought it back and said, boy, Dave, I don't know what you did to the transmission, but it's uh, real difficult to start an IV when that thing shifts. So whatever you did, if you can undo it, that'd be great. So <laughs> at that point, I'm like, okay, this thing can't break down and it's got to shift smooth. So I have to have, in that case, we would, um, you know, if the shift uh, duration is going to be, let's say, six tenths of a second, um, we're going to have to have 
friction plates that are thick enough that oil, they'll have enough oil in them that it can ooze out for at least six tenths of a second. So let's say that's a plate that's 100,000 thick, you know, the entire plate, the linings on both sides and the steel core. Um, now that plate will survive because it's got enough oil oozing out of it. As opposed to, let's say someone takes and puts in uh, a lot more plates. Let's say they, they take a five plate drum and they try to stick seven or eight plates in. Well, you have to go to thinner steels and you have to go to thinner frictions to do that. So let's say you did that in that same application. And now when you made the shift and it was, a, a again, a six tenths of a second shift, well, the thin plates, let's say they're only 50 thousandths thick, um, those might run out of oil, you know, the oil that's going to squeeze out of that friction plate, they might run out of oil at four tenths of a second. So now all of a sudden we went two tenths of a second during the shift with no lube oil squeezing out of that lining to cool the steel plate. And even though we have more capacity, you know, eight plates are going to hold more than five, obviously, if it's a static thing but they're going to overheat when they're dynamically applied because they're not thick enough to hold enough oil. So, so that would be absolutely the wrong thing to do for somebody that wanted to, that was towing and they were uh, hauling livestock or horses or whatever, and they want a smooth shift. Well, you would not put seven or eight plates in that front drum. You'd go back to five plates, or if you can get six thick plates in there by, uh, machining the top backing plate down, but you want thick enough plates that will hold enough oil to survive that longer shift. So on the other hand, if we're building a race truck and we need more plates in there, and if they're only gonna survive, if they only have enough oil for three tenths of a second shift, um, Uh, you might have to replace those every once in a while. Uh, so if you put, if you need more plates to handle that kind of power, you're going to have to make the uh, shift quicker. The, the bad thing about that is going to be more of a shock load to the gear train. So now all of a sudden your input shaft is going to feel that your intermediate shaft is going to feel that. Um, so there's a lot of, different ways to build the tranny, but you have to make sure that, you know, what do you need? If you need a smooth shift, we need thick frictions and thick steels. If you need a firm shift, well, we better be putting in um, some quality billet shafts to take that kind of a shock. And uh, we can't be building in a bind up. You know, if all these transmissions had a, um, were coming off of a roller clutch, because it always takes two things to make one gear. You got to have a driving member, you got to have a holding member. So let's say the one, two shift in a uh, 47 or 48, the holding member is the one way roller clutch in the back of the main case. So when it shifts to second, when the band comes and stops that front drum, the one way roller clutch simply free wheels. 
and you there's not a possibility of a bind up there. Um, on the two three shift, there's no roller clutch involved. You've got the front band holding that uh, drum stationary. So then when it makes the shift to third, the clutch inside that drum basically grabs the back of the input shaft and starts to spin with it. Well, if the band didn't release that drum before the clutch comes on, you're basically in two gears at one time. So with a stock valve body, um, the factory uh, puts in what they would call overlap or what I call bind up. They start to apply that front drum before they release the band so that the, uh, that the unit doesn't have a cut loose. You know, the engine would have a flare, you know, like that on a two, three upshift. So the factory gets by with that because it happened at low pressure. They have a bind up or what, what they call an overlap. Um, the sacrificial parts become either the band lining or the front clutch lining. So you go in there and replace those. And, you know, that's just like replacing uh, brake pads to a transmission. That's like, hey, I'm going to go in there and replace the, the cheapest parts. When we go in and increase the pressure so that we have more holding power, because it's either increase the number of clutch plates you have, increase the diameter of the clutch plates so the mean radius is larger, or increase the hydraulic pressure. Well, that's going to be the thing because it's hard to, you only can put in so many clutches and you can't really change the diameter unless you're going to change the whole, the whole thing. So you increase the pressure. Well, now you can't really have that overlap or that length of overlap during that two, three shift, because if the band is holding that drum and the front clutch comes on and the band says, you know, I got enough pressure here. I'm not going to give up. Well, if the clutch is coming on with enough pressure, what takes the hit is the input shaft because you're driving the input shaft at the front. All of a sudden for a split second, you're trying to hold it at the back and snap goes the shaft. So the biggest thing that breaks input shafts is, um, you know, a bind up on the two, three shift, you know, um, other than, uh, you know, if it's driven normally, of course, if the wheels leave the ground and then uh, come back to gain traction, you know, that's going to break anything too. So, you know, I'd like to say that billet input shafts uh, never break it, but it's, you know, that's just, just a case of, uh, you know, what's getting done to them. They might last a little longer than the stock one. And, you know, like on, uh, on those Dodges, we used to, when we would build transmissions, we would, you know, we keep a list of everything that got replaced, how many miles was on it, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it uh, wasn't um, an immediate uh, thing that you could get information from, but <clears throat> years down the road, you go back through those, uh, uh, that stuff, you know, and we would find that if we reused an input shaft, let's say we built a train, he had 60,000 miles on it. We reused that input shaft. And it was, uh, you know, a performance type truck. Um, that stock input shaft would come back at about, you know, average of about 140, 150,000 miles. And, um, you know, it'd be broken. And um, on an intermediate shaft, that was uh, usually about uh, 250. And that would be, you know, simply from fatigue. 
So um, now we would replace them with new and that helped. And uh, <clears throat> you know, there were some guys that worked at the Kokomo plant that I knew and, and they had ordered some billet shafts from us one time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so they called up and asked if shafts are done. And I said, no, I'm just getting them out of the lathe. And they said, oh, you make them there? And at that time, we did not. And I said, no, I'm just uh, checking them to make sure that they're straight. And the one guy made the comment. He said, oh, yeah, we can tell from, he just said, from 50 feet if it's a, a quick draw. And I said, what do you mean a quick draw? And he said, well, we have two different heat treat processes here at the uh, plant. Uh, one is an 18-hour process and one is a nine-hour process. And I said, well, if nine is good, why would you ever do 18? And he said, well, the nine-hour is the quick draw. And um, he said, those are the ones where the shafts will come out warped. And he said, you know those dots on the shaft? He said, you know what those are? And I said, I I just figured it was going through an inspection station and each inspector had their own colored dot. He said, now, he said, when the shafts get straightened, it leaves a dot on the shaft. When we put the shafts in the new trannies, we'll take the ones that have no dots. The ones that have one or two dots, they get repackaged for replacement parts. Um, if they have three dots, they get kicked off the line and I assume remelted. So I started keeping track of that. And sure enough, the ones that would come out of trucks that I knew that the transmission had never been apart, <clears throat> those shafts, no dots. The replacement ones were either one or two dots. Wow. <laughs> so then we would sort those things, you know, and um, use the ones that only had a new shaft that had one dot. Oh, okay, well. Hopefully that's better than the one that got straightened twice. So you, you can't even get those shafts anymore. They're obsolete, but that's what I was told. Now, hopefully there, there might be some Chrysler engineers out there that say, oh, wait, wait, wait a second. That's not right. If, if that's not right, you know, hopefully they can enlighten me. But that's what I was told by a couple of guys that actually worked there. And it made sense to me at the time. Um, so uh, I probably got off on a tangent there, but well, what's really interesting to me about these kits is we get a lot of people that'll uh, message into us or or I'll chat with, and they're shopping uh, rebuild kits. And when you are going through the list of what's in there, it is different than what we see in the marketplace because we'll see these. It's like there's one kit for everything. There's whether you're, you know, a, a truck that's towing or, you know, you're going to build a race truck. It's just like it's the same bands, clutches, some hard parts, and then you're sold billet shafts and a converter and you're on your way. So when you are going through the difference of what you need, you know, for that smooth shift in a, a truck that's towing, how that's built different than somebody who's at 
1400 horsepower and racing down the track mm-hmm. it, it's incredibly valuable you know to the audience out there to understand that and also like how it can be customized so i'm sure if somebody calls in and says hey this is a you know 1800 horsepower truck that i tow to the track or this is my bone stock 2006 that i pull a horse trailer with they can get exactly what they need versus trying to make a compromise with this kind of one kit setup that the marketplace has, which I never really liked because people use their trucks so different. So that was was really insightful to hear. And I know a lot of the questions, you know, some of them that we got from our audience, you know, they went into what, when do I need billet shafts or at what point? And it's good to know that you're starting with a kit <clears throat> that has things in it that you're probably going to need. You may need, you don't have to use um, you know, some of those components, as you mentioned, um, but they're there. I don't have to call back and say, hey, can you guys overnight this to me? Or, you know, a shop that's saying, hey, this is holding up my bay. I need to get this, you know, transmission back in, but I need this particular part. It's already in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll I'll probably um, get in trouble for. Uh, um, I'll probably get in trouble down here when uh, people start calling it, well, I want the clutches that are a hundred thousand sick and, and I want these like this. And you know, they'll say, what did you say? And so anyway, because of that, we try to, you know, because that, that would be a nightmare to keep. I mean, this is a small place. I mean, we don't have the square footage to keep all of that different stuff in stock. So we try to, make a lot of those changes in the valve body so the kit can be standardized and then oh okay you're racing with it we can make this modification in the valve body we um, would like to run thinner clutches but we know that it's going to be a, a longer shift so then we'll put the hole in the input shaft because we're going to force oil into that. So we'll give those clutches more oil, just like on the on a C3 and an Allison. Um, you know, the C3s are on in uh, third gear. All that oil gets squeezed out of the clutch. Then it shifts to fourth gear. The C3s come off. You're only in fourth gear for maybe, you know, five seconds. And then it shifts to fifth gear where the C3s come back on. Well, you didn't have enough time to re-wet those clutches for the four to five shift. And that's why you see so many C3s go out and not the C4s, you know, it's the same clutch. So um, anyway, uh, we, we tried to do a lot of that stuff in the valve body, like to, to lubricate the, the front band, uh, you know, James does a modification in the valve body to lubricate the lining of that band so we don't have to rely just on the splash so to lubricate the front clutch we put the hole in that so so you know if somebody calls in and says well i need all hundred thousands plates and i would talk to them a little bit and explain well there's more ways to do this than than one but you know if uh, if we didn't have those other options then the only option would be get a thick plate in there so if, if I called in and I was building a 48 RE, is that where the, you know, the guy on the phone is going to say, okay, well, what are you doing with this? Um, this is what, this is the valve body that you need. This is how we're going to put this together. So there's multiple components that go into getting this complete setup. Yeah. Um, so if, if you called in and you would talk to uh, Dave Anderson, um, who is not a transmission 
technician. So, and, and, you know, James or I, or the other guys that actually build them, you know, it's not like we would be able to come to every phone call. So there would be a, a, a whole bunch of questions that Dave would ask. What are you doing with the truck? What are the modifications? What's your elevation? You know, all this stuff. Then when we would get the build sheet in the back and uh, we would start looking at this and let's say the order was incorrect, so to speak. You know, James might look at the valve body order and he might say, whoa, wait a second. Why is this guy ordering a manual shift valve body, but he's towing cattle and the horsepower is 400 horse. What's what's going on here? So then what would happen is one of, you know, James or I or my brother Bob would get on the phone, call this customer up and give him the 21 question. Hey, why, why are you asking for this? Because it just doesn't uh, add up here. And the guy might say, well, you know something, I've had so much electrical problems, I just want a manual valve by. So then we would explain, okay, you know, you realize you're gonna have to shift this manually every time. And, you know, if he, if he's been around manual valve buys before and understands that all, then it's okay, fine, we'll build it. If he doesn't, if he's like, well, I'm just gonna put it in drive and take off. Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. So then we might try to help him, especially if his truck is still drivable, we might try to help him. Okay, let's figure out the problem here first before we build something that's just uh, not a real compatible thing with how you're driving it. So, so yeah, it, it might not happen with the initial call in, but after Dave fills out all the questionnaires, and I think those questionnaires are on the website too. And um, uh, Mason, the guy that does the uh, website stuff, I think he is uh, working with somebody so that we can split that website between uh, retail and wholesale and um, you know different people will fill out different things on that website and then we can oh wait a second this is a mismatch somebody's got to call this person or something like that so it, most of the time it works out just normally but you know in the sometimes when in odd circumstances th this is a mismatch somebody has to call them that makes sense. I know that, you know, the next, uh, the next part, probably a whole podcast by itself, but it, uh, I was thinking, you know, after those 48 REs, 68s hit the market, how, how heavily involved have you guys gotten with the 68 RFE platform as far as, uh, you know, with converters, maybe internal transmission parts, things that, uh, people can do to help make them more reliable? Well, of course we have, all the converters for them in whatever k factor or uh, torque ratios you need um we make the pans for them uh there's a backing plate that we uh make for the uh uh input drum what did you say flex plates oh flex plates which if if we can come back to flex plates that that's a whole nother issue in itself. Um, so we are making more and more things. I mean, the, the cooler bypass, I think you had a question about that also. Yeah. Um, um, let's see, what else do we make for those things? 
input shafts, um, which that kind of gets back to the flex plate also. So a couple, let's just talk about flex plates for a second. If, if I want, if you want me to jump in. Yeah, de definitely. Place. All right. So a, a 68 RFE as our most torque converters, that's a floating pilot. You ever heard the term floating pilot or non-floating pilot? I haven't, no. All right. Um, a 47 or a 48, that is a non-floating pilot. So the 47 and 48, if you take a stock converter and a stock flex plate and you drop the flex plate onto the converter, the flex plate bottoms on the, the shoulder of the pilot in the center of the converter. And then if you, uh, you could rock the thing on the converter, which you might think that, oh, something's wrong. The flex plate should bottom on the converter where it bolts to the converter, you know, at the outside ring. But that's not true in a 4748. The reason they did it that way is when they first um, married that Cummins engine to the Dodge transmission, they put the adapter plate in. And when you, when you measure things up, um, and I'm taking this off memory, so it's, you had about uh, 70 or 80 thousandths of an inch gap between the heads of the converter bolts that held the flex plate to the converter and the engine adapter plate. So the, when you tighten those bolts, you actually flex the plate towards the converter because the converter is bumped into the plate at the center already. It can't move forward any farther. So when you tighten those bolts, the flex plate flexes back towards the converter and it gains you some room between the heads of the bolt and that adapter plate on the engine. You used to have a lot of, you know, flex plates on the, uh, especially the, you know, 89 to 93 non lockups. Those things would last for, you know, 200,000 miles. Then somebody rebuilds the transmission and all of a sudden you can't keep a flex plate in it anymore. And, and then the flex plate gets blamed. Well, what happens is, um, I think a lot of converter places back, you know, 20, 30 years ago were basically machine shops that, you know, the transmission shops would say, hey, I, I got to cut this converter open. I got to clean it up. So they go to the local machine shop and they say, yeah, sure. We'll cut the thing open. You do your thing to it and we'll weld it back together. Well, machinists, they don't like metal that doesn't look nice and perfect. So that shoulder on the front of the converter that sits about 90 thousandths higher than the pads, that rubs on the flex plate, kind of like a tire squirms on the road surface. It's not spinning on the road surface, but it's squirming around. So that area starts to look bad. 
So of course the machinist says, you know, I'm, I'm just going to clean that area. It's only going to take me 15 seconds. I got it on the lathe anyway. So he takes, let's say, 60 thousandths of an inch off of that area. Well, now the flex plate does bottom on the pads. And now when you install everything, because the flex plate doesn't flex back towards the converter anymore, you don't gain that room between the heads of the converter bolts and the engine adapter. So now you always have a forward thrust, of course, on a 4748. You don't have much of a forward thrust because the flex plate's not going to flex because where, it's, where it will flex is between the converter bolts or excuse me, between the flex plate to crank bolts and that pilot hole on the inside. But now that you machine that area on the converter back a little bit, now you just turn that converter into a floating pilot and it pushes towards the crank. Then the heads of the bolt hit that adapter plate and it starts to tear everything up. And the root cause is somebody machined that area turned it into a floating pilot. Now it moved forward, the bolts strike, and they, and they think the flex plate broke first and started ruining everything else, but that's, that's not what happened. You know, the bolt started to strike that adapter plate. So on a 47 or 48, you know, when you put in a, a billet flex plate, you, uh, it's unheard of to get one of those flex plates back cracked because they don't flex. It's not a floating pilot, you know, and if they do flex, it's between the, where the crank bolts are and that center hole. On a 68, that's a floating pilot. The only difference between those two plates is the hole in the center is big enough for the pilot to pass through. So that pilot passes through there and because this is a floating pilot system, that plate is going to flex, you know, axially, you know, towards the engine and back towards the transmission and it's sitting there, you know, flexing constantly. So it's not unheard of to get a 68 RFE flex plate back cracked like that. And of course the customer will say, you know, you got a junk plate and it's like, well, it's the same plate as a 4748. Here's the difference. And then they'll say, well, why can't you make that plate stronger so it just doesn't flex? Um, which we could, but a floating pilot, um, the, the reason that system is like that, a flex plate is there to save the crank thrust bearing. It, it's not there so that you can weld the converter together and have 10 or 15 thousandths run out and, you know, anything like that. It's to save the crank thrust. So um, there's a couple things that force the converter forward. Number one, uh, you know, pressure times area is force. And if you've got, uh, let's say, the area of the front cover of that converter is uh, 130 square inches. And if you've got 100 PSI in the converter, well, you've got uh, uh, whatever it is, 13,000 pounds of force pushing towards the crank. Now, on the back of the converter, you have the same area. 
So the force is going to be pushing towards the rear also. So those forces offset with the exception of the hole in the converter hub. So let's say that's about two square inches. So if you're running 100 PSI in the converter, two square inches, you got 200 pounds of force less pushing towards the rear than you've got pushing towards the crank. So you've got 200 pounds of force pushing towards the crank. And the crank thrust bearing is meant to take that. So where the flex plate comes in is, uh, you know, if you were uh, driving a manual transmission, and you were under a heavy load and you tried to pull that shifter out of gear while you were under load without using the clutch, it'd be hard to do because you've got the, you know, the gears are locked to each other. Um, so in an automatic, if you're under those same conditions, the turbine inside the converter could be locked on the splines of the input shaft. So now the oil that is between the front cover and the turbine or the clutch that's in there, the, that, we're back to this 13,000 pounds of force pushing forward. And we've got the same force pushing rearward on the front uh, piston, you know, the lockup piston in the case of a lockup and the turbine. So the turbine slides on the input shaft. It bumps into the stator. The stator slides on the stator support shaft and bumps, and then that bearing bumps into the impeller. And now the forces are offset again. So we're back down to just a couple hundred pounds of force on the crank from the hole in the back of the hub. You with me? Yep. All right. So. Now let's say that you have spline lock, just like in that manual tranny, and the turbine can't reposition itself on those input shaft splines, and the stator can't reposition itself on the stator spline, because the stator is going to be locked on there also. Uh, let's say you have a converter that multiplies torque uh, two to one, and let's say your torque output is 400 pounds and from the engine going into the converter. And if it multiplies two to one, you got 800 pounds going into the input shaft. So where's the other 400 pounds? The other 400 pounds is the, the torque that's trying to turn the stator opposite engine direction. It's redirecting that oil. So that's why those splines would be locked also. So now, we basically have a push-off point inside the converter. We have the front of the converter going towards the engine. We have the other pressure pushing on the turbine, but the turbine's locked on the input shaft, so it can't move towards the rear. So now if it can't move towards the rear, it won't bump into the stator, and even if it did, the stator's locked. So now we don't have that offsetting force pushing on the impeller anymore, you know, the back of the converter. So now we've got all this force on the crank. 
So what happens is you have a flex plate in there. And, and let's say the converter has 20,000 cent plate. So the front of the converter is going to move 20,000 towards the crank. And it's going to, and because the back of the converter is welded to the front, the impeller is going to move along with it and it's going to bump into that stator bearing now. And now those, the forces inside the converter are offset again. So the flex plate allowed that converter to move forward. The pilot of the converter floated inside the crank and moved forward. So now what we have on the crank is the, let's say we had 100 pounds of pressure in the converter. We have the uh, 200 pounds of force on the crank plus whatever it took to deflect that flex plate. So you look at 10 different flex plates and they all got different size holes. You know, and so it's like, you know, why don't I put it in the same size hole? Well, I'm sure the flex plate guy talked to the crank guy. The crank guy said, you know, my thrust bearing on the crank will take this much force. So the flex plate guy says, all right, we got to put in this many holes so that the plate deflects this many thousands with this much force on. So um, that's, I mean, we could do probably do one podcast on, uh, on uh, floating pilots. So anyway, when, uh, when you put a billet flex plate on a 68, you're somewhat, um, you're, you're making the floating pilot stiffer, if you will. You're not taking it away, but you're making it stiffer. So that plate's going to flex. And, um, you know, when people say, well, I need to make the plate uh, thicker and stronger so it doesn't flex, the answer is I can do that. It'd be real simple. It'd probably be, it'd, it'd be faster because I'm, it's going to take less machine time because it's going to be a thicker plate. But right now, the flex plate is the fuse because the Cummins crank still takes that amount of force and the plate breaks before it ruins the crank. So it's like, you know, you got to be careful what you wish for. Yeah. So uh, getting back to the input shaft, I think this all started with the input shaft we make for 68. Because the 68 moves forward on the tip of the input shaft, there's a seal. And that seal is to separate uh, uh, release pressure from applied pressure. If the seal wasn't there, the converter wouldn't lock up. Well, that machined area on a 47 or 48 in, input shaft, uh, boy, I think that's half an inch long. Half an inch long. And on a, six, on a 68, I think it's maybe six, uh, well, uh, it's probably 300 thousandths long. So it's shorter area. So where it needs to be a longer area, you know, on a, on a 47 and 48, because that's a non-floating pilot, that seal doesn't move, that seal doesn't move forward and come off the tip of the input shaft. But on a 68, because it's a floating pilot, if the converter moves far enough forward, you should have a longer tip on the input shaft so the seal doesn't come disengaged from the input shaft. So on our input shaft, we made that area a little bit longer. We can't, 
if everybody was going to buy our converter with that input shaft, we could have made it longer yet. But some people might buy the input shaft and use it with somebody else's converter, which is fine. Or they might use it with a stock converter. So we, we could only add so much length because we had to make it fit any converters. But we did add length to that shaft. That's one of the things we did different to the shaft because we don't want to do something just to make it different. It should be, you know, if it's not going to do anything, why bother? Yeah. So if we're going to do something, we might as well do it for a good reason. So that, that that's one of the other things we recently uh, have is uh, billet input shafts for the 68. And that's the one of the changes we made to it so that the, so that the seal on the converter, because of a floating pilot, has a fighting chance not to come off <laughs> the end. <laughs> um, yeah. So the other the other thing is, um, you know, one of the other things is uh, the cooler bypass. Uh, of course, uh, the good thing about the uh, cooler bypass is um, they'll gain you mileage because they heat the tranny up quicker. If you look at the SAE testing, you know, Society of Automotive Engineers, um, on a, if, if it's just driven empty, uh, the mileage increase is about 4.2%. If it's uh, trailer towing, it's about 2%. Um, so that's a good thing. The bad thing is if those things uh, plug up, you just scorch the tranny. So you can probably a lot, buy a lot of fuel for not scorching the tranny. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's the good thing about a uh, cooler bypass. I was just looking down the questions we got from our audience and we, we have touched on them. Um, some of them that came up like the, the full flow cooler that you just mentioned and, and the benefits to it. I wanted to ask you a couple of these though. Um, and they're going to kind of be all over the place with different models of transmissions and, and opinions that you might have. But somebody asked about deep pans and do they really help with transmission cooling? I know there's some great info on your website about it, but what difference can someone expect that, you know, they put a deep pan on their transmission and say they have a temp gauge on an older truck or the new ones will, you know, show what the, the temperature is. But what, what do they see? Well, I, I've had people call and tell us that it has dropped the temperature 20 degrees. Um, I don't argue that with them. I guess in the past, I have told people that, uh, you know, if you're fighting an overheating problem, a transmission pan is probably not the first place I would want to look because the heat comes from the, you know, manual transmission, you never run a cooler. Because gear train just doesn't make heat. Um, if you've got a slipping clutch pack in the transmission, yeah, it's, it's gonna produce heat, but it's gonna be a localized heat at the clutch pack. You're not gonna see that on the transmission temperature gauge. It's the converter that um, if you have the stator built the wrong way, that they might work good, but they could produce a lot of heat. And uh, we've tested that. Or if the converter doesn't lock up for whatever reason, and uh, you know, a lockup converter is, is charged just opposite of a non-lock converter. That's why you know somebody might say, you know, I've got an old uh, 440 
in my old motor home. It's a non-lockup and that thing never overheats. Well, that's because the converter is filled from the ID and um, not from the front and then has to spill around the OD. But at any rate, uh, back to the pans, yeah, they would, you would see a cooling effect from the pan um, and different people are gonna see a different amount depending on where they are and what they're doing. They will stiffen the transmission case um, some transmissions are, you know, if we were talking about a transmission that doesn't have a full bell housing, like a turbo 350 or turbo 400, well, uh, an aluminum pan will help stiffen that case and it would be more beneficial there than it would be on a, on a bell housing that has a you know, full, uh, you know, full circle bell housing, but it can't hurt. Um, our biggest reason for a aluminum pan is that it's a little bit deeper and you can drop the filter down lower so that you don't suck air if it's a little bit uh, low on fluid you're going around the corner or something like that um, i don't necessarily want to add a whole lot of fluid because the more fluid you add the more it's going to expand so depending on how far away that fluid is from the gear train. You don't wanna turn bubbles into it. And if the vent is uh, low, like on a 47 or 48, unless you reposition that vent, you gotta be careful how much extra fluid you're gonna put into the thing. Now, that said, um, I think for uh, coolers, or I mean uh, for fluid, um, the fluid life is reduced about 60% when the total sump capacity is reduced only by 30%. So, of course, the more fluid you have in there, the longer the fluid is going to last. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, you get too much fluid in there and um, all of a sudden you got fluid up in the gear train and it's foaming and everything else. So it's kind of a um, damned if you do, damned if you don't. So... Uh, I, you know, pans aren't a bad thing, but, you know, our, our, my biggest reason to put on a, a deeper pan is to drop the filter down lower in the pan. Gotcha. You don't suck air. And then the benefit of, uh, you know, a little, some cooling and stiffening up the case. Drain plug. You know, drain plug, yeah. We slope the bottom of the pan so that hopefully all the sludge comes out. And then we have the exterior flat on ours so that the thing doesn't rock on a jack. So, And they look nice. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Um, you had mentioned fluid. That was another question we got. And I, I think we, if we stick with the Dodge, say the 47, 48s, even 68 RVs for this one, is somebody asked, does Dave like a, a specific type of transmission fluid or does he like to just run the OEM specification? So say... You know, if if somebody calls up and says, "Hey, I got I got this rebuild kit. Uh, I've got the transmission going together. What fluid should I recommend for? What what fluid would you recommend for this transmission? What do you guys say?" Uh, on a forty-seven or forty-eight, I would say um, any good quality brand name fluid is going to be fine. And 
the next thing I would say is if you had a cooler line leak or something like that, and you're five miles away from the, or 10 or 50 miles away from the closest place that you can get actual tranny fluid, any fluid is better than no fluid. So if you've got, uh, if you're three quarts low after you fix the line and all you've got is uh, 10W30 engine oil, that's what we're putting in there. Because that 47 and 48, that's a, it's either gonna be totally hydraulically controlled or if it's computer controlled, the computer controls when it shifts, not how it shifts. So basically we're working with a, uh, you know, a hydraulic system with wet clutches. So in, in, you know, but if somebody said, you know, aside from the breaking down and running low on fluid, what would you use? I would say, you know, I would probably use Dexron 3 and I would use a, uh, a lube guard additive. The reason I would recommend that, um, we had, uh, this is years ago. So the test was done on a, on a Dodge with a non-lockup convert, which is a good thing because the, the lockup uh, part didn't um, start cooling the tranny at all. So we ran, the guy wanted to know what fluids would give him the best fluid coupling. And um, I said, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's gonna be a big difference in the fluid coupling, but hey, if you wanna pay for chassis dyno testing, let's do it. I forget all the fluids we tested, but at any rate, we were monitoring the temperature, uh, you know, with a, uh, you know, handheld uh, digital uh, thermometer. We were running at uh, 55 miles an hour, 200 horsepower at the wheels. Not that, I mean, 200 horsepower at the wheels is a pretty good load. You know, it's a year driving down the road with an empty truck, you're probably 40, 50 horse at the wheels. So I wanted to overtax the system to actually see if there was gonna be any difference. And between all the fluids that we used, I think back then we used uh, Dexron, Dexron 2, uh, 7176, uh, and type three, because there wasn't a type four yet. That's how long ago this test was. <laughs> and um, so the last thing we did, well, I should take this back. We saw a two horsepower difference in, uh, you know, power down to the rollers. And we did not take into account the effects of the day, you know, from morning to afternoon. So I, I basically said, yeah, there's, there's really no difference in fluid coupling. Uh, a temperature difference will make a difference on fluid coupling. I mean, if you run something too cold or too hot, that'll make a difference. The, the prime temperature would be between 190 and 210 in the converter because it strips off all the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the moisture, so to speak. You got to get it hot enough to get rid of the moisture. And um, so anyway, back to that test, didn't see any difference. The last thing we did was put in a bottle of lube guard. And I'm not advertising for lube guard, but hey, it worked. Um, we put in a bottle of lube guard, and the temperature dropped from 210 down to 180. So 
of course, the guy that was helping me at the time, I accused him of not pointing the, the temperature <laughs> pistol at the same location. And he said, you know, if you want to lay under here and do that, I'll, uh, I'll drive. So I said, okay, sounds good. So, um, we did that. Sure enough, the temperature had dropped and we didn't, we didn't shut the engine off. We didn't change the fluid or anything. We just slowed down enough to pour the bottle in. And so the fan wouldn't blow things all over the place and went back to the test. And so then, you know, I, I was a doubter of that. I asked my brother-in-law, who's a, he's a mechanical engineer. He's not a chemical engineer, but he worked at Deere at the time. And I, I had told him about that test. And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and he said, mm, yeah, just uh, the chemical made the fluid give up its heat easier. And I just, you know, I said, I don't know about that. And, and then he looked at me and he said, and he lives about four miles from where I do. He said, oh, you don't believe that we could make a chemical that affected, oh, I guess I should back up here. I said, ah, uh, you know, you hear all that stuff about the pour this in the crankcase and then they drain the oil out and the crankshaft survives and blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, you don't believe that we could make a, a chemical that would treat the metal inside the engine or the transmission or the tranny fluid? And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders. And, and he's pretty good at putting it in plain English. He just said, you got some battery acid at the shop? And I said, yeah. He said, tell you what, you go home tonight and pour a quart of battery acid in your crankcase and tell me it didn't uh, affect the metal or treat the metal tomorrow morning. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, all right. So anyway, on the 47s and 48s or anything that's not a truly computer-controlled, you know, how it shifts, um, I, I would, I, that's what I would recommend. Uh, if they wanted to use a synthetic, um, that stuff's probably already in the synthetic, uh, so I probably wouldn't add the lube guard, but I would go by the instructions of the bottle of lube guard. Um, on the 68, or like an Allison, anything that's um, totally computer controlled. So, um, you know, on an Allison, they call them tap cells target apply pressure on uh, a 68 RFE, they would call that um, CVIs for clutch volume index. So the numbers, uh, I'm just gonna use numbers that are easy for me to remember. So anyway, when, the, when a 68 or an Allison shifts, especially an Allison, because that's all clutch to clutch, um, the computer times how long it took to make that gear ratio change because it's just looking at the input speed sensor and the output speed sensor. So if it says, hey, I'm going to start the shift right now, and then it times it and it says, you know, that shift took uh, half a second. Perfect. I'm going to leave my tap cell the same. Let's say the computer saw that it wanted the shift in half a second, but the shift took seven tenths of a second. Well, the computer is gonna adjust those tap cells. It's going to bring the oncoming clutch on quicker by giving it more fluid in the same amount of time, just like a, 
engine fuel injector. I mean, you step on the throttle, the, the, the holds the injector open longer. So same thing on a transmission holds the, we could call it the oil injector open longer to get that clutch on quicker. So it adjusts that tap cell accordingly. So on one of those, the people that are doing the software for the transmission, they're gonna wanna know what's the viscosity of that oil at this temperature, at this temperature, at this temperature, at this temperature. So I would use the factory recommended fluid because the computer is gonna relearn the fastest because it's all, if you reset the tap cells to the, like on an Allison, to the fast learn, or if you reset the CVIs on a uh, uh, Dodge into whatever they are gonna call it, but you know, it's gonna be a relearning mode. Well, the computer is gonna say, all right, you reset me. I'm expecting this type of fluid. So let's say you put in new clutches and let's say the old clutches were a disaster and you had, let, let's just say on the clutch clearances was 150,000. So the computer was, it kept giving it more and more and more fluid to keep that shift time down to let's say half a second. Now you go in there and put new clutches in and you're down to let's say 80,000. Well, if you don't reset the tap cells and the first shift out of the gate, that computer tries to give it, let's say a hundred cc's of oil expecting you had 150,000 clearance in the clutch. Well, that's gonna be a huge bind up. So the, the computer, if you didn't reset the tap cells, the computer might move from a CVI or a tap cell index of let's say, 100 down to 98 and then it'll shift again and now it took a, a a little bit of the bind up off but not much well if you reset the tap cell just like if you um let's say your uh, fuel economy let's say you never reset the uh, average fuel economy for 50,000 miles and, and you're getting 20 miles to a gallon and you go up a big long hill and you know you're only getting 10 miles to a gallon but by the top of the hill that your average only changed a 10th because it's averaged over 50,000 miles. Well, if you reset that, now your average is gonna be all over the place. So when you reset those tap cells, that first shift, instead of dropping from a, a tap cell uh, index of 100 down to say 98, it might drop from 100 all the way down to 70 on that first shift. And it might only take two or three shifts to get close to the perfect shift as opposed to 30 or 40. So now let's say you throw in a different type of fluid and that might take longer for the transmission to relearn because now it's got to relearn a different fluid also. Or let's say you change the clutches from one brand to another. Let's say you, uh, well, let's say you did the worst thing and you put in some uh, C3s and C4s. I don't think anybody makes them like this, so, so I'm not knocking anybody. But let's say somebody did make C3s and 4s that had no grooves in them, any kind of groove. You know, if you take two uh, pieces of uh, glass 
and they're dry and you, you lay one on top of the other, well, you can pick the top one off real easy. Now, if you put a film with transmission fluid or engine oil or water or anything, they're going to stick together. Yeah. And they're not going to want to slide on each other. Well, they'll, they'll probably slide better with the fluid in there. But, but at any rate, those grooves are to, uh, you know, when the clutch is supposed to be released, like on the 4748, when the front drum is stationary, but the, so the steels are stationary, but the frictions are spinning with the back of the input shaft and those clutches are supposed to be released, you wouldn't want clutches in there that didn't have any grooves because you want to break up that film of oil between them so they're not stuck together and kind of sliding on each other. So on an Allison, let's say somebody made clutches with no grooves, well, that offcoming clutch, if that doesn't, if those plates don't break away and they still have a drag on there, you can imagine the computer is going to go, what's going on here? I'm doing all I can, but I can't get that clutch to, you know, completely release. So, so when it's a transmission like that, that's totally computer controlled and the computer can adjust for the shifting, I, I would, I would go with the factory fluid. That's a good recommendation. I think a lot of guys run into that when they may have owned a five, nine for a long time and they, had a certain uh, regiment that they followed with their fluids and then maybe they pick up a brand new truck or you know something like that and it doesn't necessarily translate over one of the other questions uh, <clears throat> i've seen this come up for years is somebody and let's stick with uh you know say the four speeds is they uh they don't do a lot to add power but they put on the lift the wheels the tires how hard are those on transmission shafts I think the reason it comes up is somebody says, well, do I really need to buy this transmission or this transmission set up with a billet input and a billet output and billet flex plate? I'm at stock power. Or I'm at 400 horsepower, but I'm running 37s or I'm running 40s. What have you seen as, as somebody in the transmission industry for so long with abuse a transmission can take with larger tires? Well, um, I'm, I'm going to work into this one backwards because you can't buy a new factory input shaft. And because I think by the time you have uh, 140 or 150,000 miles on a stock input shaft and it could be fatigued, you know, um, the fatigue is, you know, a real 10 real firm shifts are going to fatigue that shaft a lot more than 10 real easy shifts. So just, you know, I have to pick a number. And so if it's at 140 or 150,000 miles, it's, you know, some transmissions, they might go three, 400 with the stock input shaft. The next one might not, but because, because we don't have the option of buying a brand new stock input shaft anymore. When somebody calls us, it's like, you know, a, a new input shaft, if we could still buy a brand new stock one, I'd say put in a brand new stock one if you're at stock power or up to 400 horse. If you're over that or because you can't buy a brand new stock one anymore, you better be putting in a billet shaft. Um, so I, I don't see that they really have much of an option. If somebody bought a truck that was sitting in the barn and had 10,000 miles on it. And now they asked me about it and I, and they said, you know, 
it's a 04 and I'm only going to up the power 70 or 80 horse, I'd probably say I'd leave the thing alone. I'd leave the thing alone um, if the converter, if the single disc converter can't handle it, you, you could put in a triple if you wanted. Um, it's going to shift, it's going to lock up firmer unless you, you know, the, the, the firmness of the lockup is going to be controlled in the valve body. So if they want to stick a valve body on it also, but you know, if it's a, if it's a 04, then you're going to have a 5.0 ratio front servo. If you put in a high pressure valve body, then you might snap that stock servo apply lever. So then, you know, if they didn't want to take the tranny out, we would say, okay, we can build you a valve body with all the other things um, that we would do, but we'll make it so that the pressure isn't so high in second gear so you don't snap that lever. But uh, yeah, back to the in input shaft, I, I don't think you really have the option anymore unless you've got a way, way, way low mileage truck and you're not going to do anything to it. Then, then I have no issue with it. Those are pretty tough to find now. And if you do find them, they're going for, yeah. for a pretty penny. Yeah. <laughs> this, big tires and stuff, though, you'd probably say something about uh, rear end oh, gear ratio. On oh, that. yeah. If if somebody were just adding the big tire, I would liken that to, um, you know, the, the pedals on your bike. Uh, if you were kind of concerned about the pedals on your bike and the pedals would be like your input shaft, I probably wouldn't want to start out in uh, fifth or sixth gear yeah. and, uh, you know, because they might break if you start out in first or second, you know. So, yeah, the, the it's going to be more stress on that gear train. Um, but going from 32s to 35s, I'd have to figure it out. It's probably not going to be that bad on it. But there again, I don't think you have much of an option. If you if you got the tranny apart, you know, the, if you break the input, that could take the converter and the pump along with it. Used to be able to buy those pumps brand new for 110 bucks. And when, when we did the trannies, you know, we would just put in a new pump, 110 bucks, man, you can't even mess with it. Yeah. But of course now you can't buy that anymore. But um, so if you break the input and if it takes out the pump, and if it takes out the converter, that was an expensive deal. Yeah. If yeah. you break the intermediate at the front, those things will, you know, if they break in the middle or at the back, not a big deal. But if they break at the front, because the power is coming from the back plant to the front planet, and if they break at an angle, you're probably buying a new core. Because when they break at an angle, the first time we had that happen, you know, I'm like, boy, who didn't tighten these front pump bolts? And then when when we had some happen to, you know, one of our units where we knew that the pump bolts were tight because, you know, we tighten them, then we'd mark the torque and somebody would sign off. You know, I just put my signature on the front, basically. So if I got called away from the tranny, I knew that, oh, yeah, I torqued those. Okay, signed off on the, on the actual pump. But they come back and hear these pump bolts are loose. What's going on? Well, every time that thing happens, when that input shaft breaks, 
at an angle, just like a crank, if it breaks at an angle, you can still run it because it still drives, broke at an angle. Well, when that, when that intermediate, I should have said, breaks at an angle, that makes such a kick on the tranny that it loosens those pump bolts. You know, it actually uh, takes the threads of the case and, uh, you know, ruins those threads. And then, and then all of a sudden the pump bolts are loose and you're like, what's going on? Well, when you take everything apart, you can't get that intermediate shaft to slide through the back of the case. And of course, then you have to pound it out. Well, by the time you pound it out, you probably ruined the back of the case. And, you know, so, so I, I would much rather see somebody replace those two shafts. And we had, we had good luck with uh, stock, brand new stock intermediates up to uh, eight, 900 horse. We never had a problem with one of those. Um, but I would much rather see the output shaft remain stock as the fuse because hey, you can replace that thing without taking the tranny out. It doesn't do any other damage. But but I, I would not put in a billet output shaft and have one of the other two stock because now you're forcing one of the other two to break and that's that's yeah that, that's a disaster that's good advice and it's a question that comes up a lot so i'll be able to reference our podcast today for people that ask that question and you know the last one i wanted to touch base with you on we chatted a little bit about it before the podcast and i know it's going to be a little tough to answer just because the locations may be different between shops and the kind of markets but um, a transmission shop had messaged us and said what kind of advice would dave you know provide me to or advice would he give me to be able to grow my transmission business? And so I wanted to ask you, like, what are a couple things that you found really helpful early on once you got into, let's say the diesel, um, you know, the Dodge transmission side, was it word of mouth? Was it, um, you know, maybe some high profile trucks out there running parts? Was it, um, I mean, back then we didn't have Instagram and Facebook, but there was Cummins Forum and TDR and some of these other places. What really helped you early on kind of get the word out of, hey, this is what we're building, this is what we offer, and you know, you guys should call me up for you know, converter, transmission build, whatever you might need. Um, well, back, I'll go back 20 years because that's probably when things really started to take off i mean if i go back 30 years we we did start to get out of doing um breaks and doing injection pumps and alignments and stuff like that and we were into transmissions but when it started to um you know, people coming from hundreds of miles away or that we started shipping transmissions out uh, we didn't really have any marketing program back then. So it was basically all word of mouth. Um, we would probably, uh, in, uh, uh, probably a fault was the guy on the other end of the phone was probably thinking, oh man, I've got to get going here because he's been explaining stuff for the last hour about how this all works. But, you know, when, when we would explain that to them and they'd ask a question and you didn't, um, you didn't, uh, you know, I, I would ask people, what do you do for a living? 
not that I want to be nosy, but I want to know if you're, if you're a carpenter, I might explain something to you differently than if you're a, if you're a doctor, you know, if you're a heart doctor, well, okay. Explaining the valve body is probably going to be pretty easy because, you know, he's working under the hydraulic system with blood. So, (laughs) you know, I would find out what they do and, you know, answer the questions, explain it to them. Um, I did not try to sell them anything. You know, it wasn't like, oh, well, how can I get you to buy before we get off the phone? It was never anything like that. It was, you know, I've answered your questions. If you got more, get a hold of me. And um, if you get something from us, great. If you don't, well, um, I've got a whole bunch of other stuff I've got to get done. So it's not, you know, not the end of the world. Um, so you gain their trust. All of a sudden that guy buys something from you. And then all of a sudden you, you get pockets built around the wherever, let's say three States away, somebody bought this from you or they drove to your place. All of a sudden their neighbor, Hey, where'd you get that thing done? And then they come and then their neighbor. So pretty soon you got a group of people there and then, you know, their brother-in-law from two states the other direction. Where did you get your truck worked on? And, you know, so that, I think that's how it kind of grew for us. Um, And when we focused on one or two things, instead of trying to do everything, I mean, when we started, we got down to just manual transmissions and automatics. Well, then we got out of doing the manuals, focused on the automatics. Then we got out of doing the foreign automatics and focused just on the, uh, you know, the U.S. automatics. And um, then when it got to, all right, we're not doing the front wheel drives anymore. And then, you know, just kept getting down to, you know, specialized in one thing. And that's what worked for us. Um but like I say, I, I think for us, it was a, uh, a combination of a, a lot of luck of being in the right place at the right time when the internet was starting to come out. I mean, we, we wouldn't have been able to do anything like that without the, without the internet. You know. it, yeah, and that's, that's, that's one of the things over the years, even before this podcast started, Whenever I'd come across or chat with somebody who's racing or I might be at the track or something, um, people always had a lot of really great things to say about about your guys' company. And that always stuck out to me. Um, and they would swear by the parts. They'd swear by the converter. And there were guys going really fast. And I think that relationship to the customer is now, I mean, it's always been important, but especially now because we're overloaded with things like Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and YouTube and everything else. And having that trust is really important because these are expensive parts and expensive Uh things that, you know, that we're doing. And I think also, you know, as far as branching out, I know there's shop owners that are listening that are thinking, okay, I've I've got my local market. I've got people who are bringing me their trucks, but I want to be able to, um, you know, start shipping things out, or I want to be able to offer, you know, some, some Garen parts with, with my builds or, you know, on my site, what are some things um, you would tell those guys as far as expanding outside of their city or their region, um, you know, ways you guys help them, whether it's 
um, you know, the sales reps or the technical questions or getting them the price sheets or, um, the, you know, answering their questions if they're stuck on something. What are ways you guys support, uh, you know, the dealer network that's out there? Um, well, we would take them one at a time, uh, basically uh, meaning that even if we, you know, back in the 90s, we, we did, we would go to about 30 different states um, for this place out of Des Moines, University Automotive Tech, and they taught fuel injection and electronics. And they asked if we would do uh, hydraulic seminars. There were two day and five day seminars for um, mechanics. And um, it turned out that the best number of people was seven or eight. Um, if you get 12 people that came to one of these seminars, it was, you know, you might get some people that, that had never been into transmissions before. And the next guy is, uh, well-versed in it. So all of a sudden you got two extremes and, and nobody gets, uh, the best, um, bang for the buck out of something like that. So we don't we don't do that anymore. I mean, some people have asked for it, and and we may do it in the future. We were thinking about before the COVID thing started, and that kind of blew everything up. But uh, we would take them one at a time, um, and at their pace, find out okay, how many of these have you done? What areas don't you like to do, or what areas are you having trouble with? And it's not that we have all the answers to how it should be done, but we'll say, well, this is how we do it. And this is why we do it this way. And usually the why we do it this way is it creates the least amount of comebacks. So <laughs> that's what the goal is. So if, if somebody wanted to, um, you know, be a dealer of ours, so to speak, you know, that's starting out there might be a lot of phone conversations back and forth. But as we get into it, it's going to be less and less and less and less. And pretty soon you talk to the guy you know, once every six months, he's ordering a bunch of parts and stuff, but he doesn't have any questions because we've already been through that. So that, that's pretty easy. I mean, we're, we're flexible. Somebody, you know, if somebody um, needs help, they would call in. Uh, they get on either my list or my brother's list or, or James, you know, depending on what they have questions about. If it's questions about a, a valve body, uh, I'm probably going to get James on the phone with them, uh, especially if they're, if they're just going to buy a valve body kit because uh, we try to do our valve body kits so that there's no drilling holes here and there we try to do everything in the separator plate which is a little bit more work for us because we might have to make a pocket in the plate that's halfway through the plate for a passage instead of trying to drill a hole so it does a couple things number one it's uh easy for the guy to install number two if uh, the customer doesn't like the kit for whatever reason you can take it back out and go back to the stock valve body you know so you don't have to plug the holes or anything like that um so we try and make it so all that stuff in a valve body kit is, you know, it's just installing these parts, not having to drill this and drill that. And um, so then we would take them and, you know, 
teach them how some of these circuits work. And if you do this, that's going to affect this. If you do that, that's going to affect that. Um, in the case of, uh, you know, converters ballooning, uh, we would explain to them, okay, this is why they balloon. Let's not make this modification or this modification because, you know, you just deregulated the converter. Um, James has a, a patent on uh, one thing, you know, if, if you have to run 200 pounds of pressure in a transmission to keep the uh, clutches alive. Um, and if they're ordering just the, let's call it the standard valve body that runs 180 PSI, there'll be no special instructions that come with that. If we have to run a valve by that, you know, let's say somebody says, I want 200 PSI. And let's say that customer tells that to Dave Anderson, like we talked at first, and that sheet comes back to the valve body department, all of a sudden that's going to prompt a call. It's going to be, okay, one of us is going to call them up. Hey, how come you want 200 PSI? Is it just because the internet told you you need that or what? And if he says, you know, I, I, this is how much power I've got, blah, blah, blah. So then we would say, all right, we can do that, but when the converter is unlocked, the pressure inside the converter is regulated by the switch valve. When the converter is locked up, the pressure is regulated by the PR valve. So if we're running 200 PSI, when it's locked up, you're going to have 200 PSI in the converter. At 135 PSI, where the converter is factory regulated, and that you can see that in the 1999 uh, a Dodge transmission manual that spells all the uh, all the valves out, what they do, why they do it, what the pressures are. So it's not I'm not just coming up with it's regulated at 135. It's right in the book, the Chrysler book. So anyway, at 135 psi, that converter balloons 50 thousandths of an inch. At 200 psi, the converter balloons 100 thousandths of an inch. And when you take the pressure off, it stayed stretched or ballooned to the tune of 35 thousandths. Now, the bearings are only shouldered in to the tune of 80 thousandths. So if you balloon at 100, uh, the bearings probably fell out of place. Somebody pulls the converter out, says, ah, your bearing came out of place. Well, yeah, you ballooned the converter. So anyway, we if somebody insisted they wanted 200 PSI, but they didn't want to buy the valve body that's a, what we call apply regulated, um, we would tell them to leave the seal, the, the seal off of the stator support, that little plastic one on a 48RE, you'd leave that off. That way, when it goes to lock up, the pressure, all the pressure is going to drop about 20 PSI. So at least that brings us down into somewhat of a safe range for the converter. But your 200 PSI at your rear clutch, your front clutch, that just went down to 180. Let's say you need 220 to keep the tranny alive. But now we know that, oh, okay, well, even leaving the seal off might drop it to 200, but yeah, now, you're, now you don't have 220 anymore and 200 is still going to balloon the converter. So James came up with a uh, regulated apply, which when it's locked up, the converter is the pressure is regulated separately of the pressure regulator valve. So now we can have 220 PSI in the, in the tranny, 
and we can regulate the converter pressure to wherever we want, you know, 160, 170 PSI. So yes, the uh, converter clutch might not hold as much as it could at 220, but back to the sacrificial parts, the sacrificial parts in a converter are the clutch plates. If we balloon it, you're done. Yeah. If we just burn up the plates because we had to reduce the pressure so we didn't balloon it, then, um, you know, at least it's an easy fix. Yeah. So um, I'm thinking I answered the question. Yeah. <laughs> I can tend to get off on. <laughs> you definitely did. And I know there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of questions that either an individual truck owner is going to have or a shop. And we'll make sure when we post this podcast to link over to you guys so they can call up and, and ask those questions. There was a guy who had a lot about a manual valve body. So I'm going to send him over to James to answer those questions that he has um, about it. But I appreciate your time today, Dave, chatting um, with me. Um, like I said, I've been following I've always loved transmissions. I don't know how to tear them apart. I don't know how to build them. I just find them fascinating and I love to mm -hmm. learn about them. And I've always been a Cummins guy. So of course it's four speeds and a little bit of the six speed stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but just hearing about uh, the company, the background and some of the, some of the issues that these transmissions have and ways you can fix them. I know is going to be really valuable for our audience here. So I appreciate uh, your guys' time today chatting with us and look forward to doing more down the road. I, I should add one thing. Um, those uh, transmission shops that want to branch out farther than their local area where they get to install the tranny. Yeah. I would keep my eyes out for a dyno. Doesn't have to be one like, you know, our dyno measures input torque, output torque. Then we can see what the K factor is and the converter and the torque ratio and stuff like that. They don't need anything like that. All they need is something to run the tranny and make sure it doesn't make noise, make sure the pressures are right, make sure it doesn't leak, make sure it has all the gears. Because when they send that thing four states away, if it's been dynoed and the guy said, you know, this thing doesn't move off the spot. Well, when you explain to them and when they see the dyno sheet that it worked fine here, that makes everybody kind of relax and, oh, okay. I forgot to put the transfer case back in gear, you know, so I would recommend if, if they're going to start doing that, look around for just a good used dyno. You can probably pick them up anywhere from, you know, they're not, they're not just all out there that you can just find them, but once in a while, you know, anywhere from, I've seen five to 20,000 bucks. So I, that would probably be my biggest recommendation because at least they got something to back them up that no, this did work correctly when it left. Yeah, that's good advice, especially with the uh, shipping costs nowadays and the time yeah. frames involved. It's not, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> not I mean, they can check the gear train and, you know, let's say they got a valve body or something like that from us that would already be dyno. Then they just have to air test the tranny. But the, the ultimate would be have something that they can test it live before they ship it. So perfect. I didn't well, want to interrupt you there, but I thought... That is, it's good advice. Well, thanks again, guys. I, I really appreciate it and the expertise. It was, it was really cool to chat with you and, and learn more. And I, I mean, I got a ton of questions now afterwards. So our pleasure. Some more. We can do it again sometime. Don't forget diesel fans, make sure and head on over to our discord. You're going to find a link down below in the description. You're also going to see the code on the screen as well. I want to see you guys over there. We're uh, really excited to be able to see all the influx of people, the great questions you guys ask and it helps give us a lot of, uh, 
there's a lot of creativity um, that you guys inspire in us with the things that you're doing to your truck, whether it's a six liter or it's six, seven power stroke, six, seven Cummins and LB seven. There's really cool builds you guys have on there. And we love hearing about them and then getting your input. So, you know, maybe we should talk to this person, have this company on to talk about parts or, you know, you guys want to know more about fuel additives or oil. So it's, it's really great. Want to see you guys over there. I also want to give a shout out to some of our Patreon sponsors. We appreciate their support. Texas diesel supply rights, diesel services and Caleb as well. We appreciate what you guys do to help us and uh, the, uh, the inspiration you give us for shows and topics and builds and things to cover until next time. Keep the shiny side up.